Hello, Degrassi fans, and welcome to the Degrassi Kid podcast, where each week we break down the history and impact of our favorite teen TV show. I'm Jocelyn, and today we're sitting down with Degrassi's publicist, Katherine Ellis. Katherine handled the publicity and promotion for the original Degrassi series, including Degrassi High and Degrassi Junior High. Katherine is one of those people who made her mark on the show without you even realizing it. She would arrange interviews for the cast, write press releases for the show, and even created a newspaper called Degrassi Digest. But that's not all. Catherine was also a part-time screenwriter. She wrote one episode of Degrassi every single season, including one of my favorite episodes called The All-Nighter, where the girls, Melanie, Kathleen, Maya, all try pot for the first time at a sleepover. Catherine even wrote the Degrassi Junior High character books for Maya and Joey, and the Degrassi Generation's 411 guide, which details facts about the show up to season four of The Next Generation. And of course, just like her other creative counterparts, Catherine also appeared in the show, making a few cameo appearances and hiding in the background. My favorite is in a season two episode called Censored, when Catherine played an irate parent who wanted Spike kicked out of school for being pregnant. She appeared in this scene alongside Degrassi's co-creator and director, Kit Hood. The craziest thing is that this long list of accolades still doesn't capture all the roles, responsibilities, and accomplishments that Catherine had on Degrassi. And that's why I'm so excited to bring you this interview. Today, we're sitting down with Degrassi's publicist, Catherine Ellis. But first, let's listen into this iconic scene where she protests against Spike's pregnancy at Degrassi Junior High. Nancy asked me to give you this announcement. Oh, thank you. But if you allow a pregnant student to stay in school, it sets a bad example. And your group will have full opportunity to express those opinions at Tuesday's meeting. Thank, thank you. you for coming by. That girl is not staying at Degrassi. You sure of that. She's going to be out of the school. It's just disgraceful. Parents You're talking about Spike. Catherine, welcome to the Degrassi Kid Podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. I'd like to tell my listeners how I get connected with people like you. Last week, I interviewed Judy Shiner, for example. Um, I've talked to other people who've worked on the show. And you, I've had the opportunity to meet you a few times at things like Degrassi Palooza. But what really stands out to me is when we met at Linda Skyler's book launch. And a story I wanted to tell the listeners is at the party, they had all these pictures printed from the book. They had them all hanging around. And you took me around and told me stories about the behind the scenes <laughs> facts of every single picture. And that stood out to me so much. And I wanted to say thank you for that. Yeah, it was a really, really good time. But specifically, when it comes to the mother of all the Grassi, I know that you and Yan Moore, your husband, the Grassi's head writer, um, had a big part in helping Linda review the book, fill in gaps, clarify the facts. What was it like for you to dive back in time and go through Degrassi's story with this book? That was really interesting. I didn't know that I was going to be doing that. And Linda's uh, assistant kept emailing and asking a question like, what date did such and such happen on? Do you know that? And finally I said, just send me the book. <laughs> I'll read it and tell you if I notice any discrepancies with, with my memory or any, like I had some documents and things still filed around. Because I always, when I was throwing everything up after Degrassi was over and it was stuff I didn't need anymore. And I would go, no, keep that one for the book. Keep that one for the book. And I didn't know how many different books that they would be kept for. But yeah. I just had an instinct that I had some records that other people might not have saved. So I was able to actually go back and look at the dates of things or uh, the text of something like what was compared to something else. And so it wasn't that much that, that we didn't agree on. But there was occasionally a thing like, was actually, that was before that. Or uh, he compared it to a Big Mac and not a brand muffin. And, and you know, just like, I know that was an actual memo that um, when they, they were talking about 
changing the show from a Sunday afternoon, like late at 5.30, I think it was, to a part-time show at 8.30 on Mondays. And um, Linda consulted with Yan, and, you know, he and I chatted about it. She wasn't consulting with me, but I was there. So, yeah. <laughs> and he wrote a memo saying, well, people are waiting, looking for a brand muffin. And when they turn on TV on Monday at 8.30, they want a Big Mac. And so we were able to find that memo that he had written on paper. Wow. And by the exact comparison. So that was kind of fun. That is so cool. I can only imagine how nice it was to dive back into those things and be like, actually, we did it this way. That's really cool. Yeah. And it was fun too. It was like, it really was like taking a little time machine trip in many ways. It really took me back to, you know, the fun and not always fun, but, you know, dealing with problems and solving issues and things like that, that we had to do all the time. That is so cool. And that's why I love getting this opportunity to talk to people like you, because we get to hear, we get to fill in the gaps of your own stories too, of like, well, what was your experience in that? And what would you, what would end up in your Degrassi memoir if you wrote one? So I really like hearing those stories. And I know that Linda also mentioned uh, in her book that when this book originally was marketed, it was Degrassi Matriarch. And then the title of the book changed to Mother of All Degrassi. Was that something that you and Yan were involved in and saying like, hey, we think you should change this title? Well, yeah, I was saying to Yan, this title makes her sound so sort of prim and old mm. that she wasn't always like a matriarch really she was more like just mom somehow a matriarch I felt it kind of distanced her from what she was sort of looking down over mm. and so I jokingly said oh you should call it the mother of all Degrassi or something like that and I was joking oh my god <laughs> and then she took it and so I thought she should have something a little more kick-ass I thought I think so too I definitely think that it, it uh, invokes more of a relationship directly with her instead of this kind of like systematic matriarch kind of thing. So I know that really stood out to me was the title change. I thought, wow, it feels so much warmer. One of the ways that you're mentioned in the book is Linda shares a fun fact that on top of, you know, helping name the book, you also had an impact when it came to naming Degrassi and thinking about how marketable it is. What was the creative input you had when it came to naming the kids of Degrassi Street? Well, I wasn't really involved with the kids of Degrassi Street until later. So it, it already had its name. I think we were just um, concerned about how are we going to spell Degrassi? Mm -hmm. There is a street. And if you go from one end to the other, you'll see the street signs. And they're all different. Sometimes there's a space between the E and the G. Some Because they were, the original guy was, there was a guy, Degrassi was his last name. So we didn't know how he spelled his name. And he was like centuries <laughs> ago anyway. I finally just said, look, it's going to be a lot easier to type if we put a lowercase g, because we're going to be typing this a lot. Mm -hmm. And we want to be able to, you know, just get through it and sort of having to do that cap and the g. So we just said, let's make it smooth in lowercase. I love that those little decisions and just like the the ease of use for the users. Now, now it's the, you know, every time that the show's getting reboot, we're still calling it Degrassi with that name. So I love those little decisions. I am curious about the history of how you got involved with the show, because my understanding is you started before Degrassi even began with Playing With Time is kind of how your relationship started. No, although I did have a funny little relationship with them before. Um, <laughs> I worked for a very small newspaper that was on a government grant. There were four of us. It was one of these things to get young people, because, you know, people talk about how young people have it tough getting into work. Us baby boomers did too, because there were a lot of us. And so it was, there were government things and stuff. And I was working on this little tiny newspaper and I got, a, well, the phone rang and whoever picked it up got the phone call and it was me. And she says, hello, I'm Linda Schuyler and we're making a film about Jimmy called Playing With Time. And we wondered if you'd write it up. And we sort of didn't really have the resources to, to do that. And I said, well, we'd love it if you would tell us, write up your story. Because I figured that she was an intelligent person who would be able to write well enough and give it to us and we put it on the front page and I think we had a picture of her as well I probably still have that in the basement too but I don't know where it is wow. and so that's how they got their first piece of publicity was through me but I wasn't their publicist at the time I didn't even know that in their office 
my husband was cutting for them. And he was already my husband. At, no, I guess we weren't quite, we were going together, but we weren't married yet. And I didn't know that he was working. I knew he was working somewhere, but I didn't oh know that he was specifically across the street from the office that I was in on the corner of Queen and Carlisle, but not the corner where playing with time offices are, but on the kitty corner corner on top of the restaurant they used to be there. They were there. We were in the church on the opposite side of the street. Wow. So that was my first connection, wow. but that's a really long shoddy kind of coincidence. But uh, how I got involved was we were actually working on the show. They'd been doing it for a few years by that point, and I had done publicity for publishing. And um, somebody said, you know, you should go freelance, and you'd be good at that. And I thought, why not? Let's do it. So I talked to my then, by then he was my, yeah, he was my husband. <laughs> and he said, why don't you give it a shot? And so I said, well, would your, that company that you're working for, do they think they need a publicist? And he says, I have no idea. Give Linda a call. So I called Linda and she said, I said, do you need a publicist? And she said, I have no idea. <laughs> put together a proposal. So I put together a little proposal and she said, sure, let's give it a shot. And she didn't have any publicity machine before before I came along. I was reading somewhere about you that you were uh, part of the publicity team. We were not a team. I'm the whole team back in those days. Wow, that is so exciting. Yeah, I got to do um I got to make these videos with Linda Skyler where we went to all these locations and she took me to that corner with the Shoppers Drug Mart that was using the show, the playing with time, the apartment building, and now I know it was on the other corner of the church that you worked at. So now I have the complete story. That's so cool. And I think that's interesting too because in, I mean, we know that Linda's connection to Stephen is that she reached out to him to be a lawyer, but she didn't really need a lawyer, so then they didn't and then they reconnected later. So it's crazy how all these little worlds just kind of connected through Degrassi. It, it really was. And that was one of the things I enjoyed about the book was that I thought Linda did make those connections and that it was like, wow, it was like so almost magic how, I mean, it seems like magic because what happened happened. But when we were putting it together, we didn't know what was going to happen. So it didn't seem like magic at all when we were in it. But when you look backwards on it, it sort of says, like, how did that piece fall into place so perfectly and perfectly and perfectly to create the Degrassi world? And it just... You know, it's a lot of hard work on a lot of people's part, but just, you know, people like Judy becoming part of the group and that you mentioned earlier and, um, you know, Sari, like she brought her own skills and talents and we had like a great onset crew and everybody. And, you know, sure, people who said, yeah, we're going to let that one go. There mm -hmm. was, you know, it wasn't a perfect matchup thing, sunburst, but it fell into place in a kind of cool way. That is very cool. I I'm curious when it comes to you being the the publicity person, what kind of things were you responsible for when you worked at Degrassi? As a publicist, um, most of my, the biggest thing of my job was to put together a press kit every year um, because I had interviews with all of the actors and kids are not easy to interview. <laughs> um, so especially when it's their first year and they have nothing to tell you and you don't know them very well. So that it, but as time went on, that got easier. They got better at knowing what I would want to hear and we got to know each other better. So the big thing was the press kit, but um, I would put out press releases when we won awards. I can remember when we won the Prejeunesse, I immediately typed up a press release. I don't know how I got copies of it because there were photocopiers. They were invented, but I don't think I had access to one at that moment, but maybe I did. I made four copies and I ran to Canadian Press, Toronto Sun, Toronto Star, and the Globe and Mail. And I remember at the Globe and Mail, there was, you could drive up onto the roof and run into the newsroom which was empty because it was after hours. And somehow I figured out whose desk to put it on and I put it on the desk. 
That's oh not my God. <laughs> no, it's what I love about the just knowing the right people, knowing where to go, knowing what to do. It's crazy how those were the the stories that came out of the the eighties. That's really really yeah. Cool. And then we went out all went out for dinner and had too much champagne. It was very fun. <laughs> That's the best way to celebrate. <laughs> well, besides that stuff, um, I would also set up interviews. Like if people uh, would call us from different places, say Calgary, and say we would like to get a couple of Degrassi kids to come out and talk about something to our students. And I would get to choose who would go with Linda's approval, of course. And then, and I wouldn't choose because I would pick favorites, but it was like, okay, who hasn't been on a trip yet? Who has something to say on this topic? You know, things like that. So I try and find that just the right match. And I would always try to get two people you don't normally see together in the show. So I would never go with like uh, Pat and Neil. Right. Because that, that covers the same ground. I would go somebody like Pat and Nikki, who was mainly an extra she had a few lines here and there but she wasn't a well-known character so that some people could look at her and say wow she's not even well known that she's coming out here so and I would set up then in town any interviews for anybody that anybody wanted I had my own office just around the corner from playing with time I would choose what scenes I would like the photographer to photograph if possible so that we would have production stills because screen grabs and things weren't happening in those days right. separate photography and they had to be black and white too because most publications in those days were largely black and white take them over to Galbraith Reproductions and have the pictures that you looked at at Linda's apartment reproduced with little captions on the bottom and credit information. Those would go into the press kits. So it was a lot of running around. I wasn't full-time with playing time. I did have other clients as well, but that was certainly my biggest client. And then at the end of the year, we used to give out calendars. So I would create the calendars for giving out. Publications, it was a newspaper that we did a couple of times. There was a newsletter that I also did. Then that got passed on to someone else later on. Uh, what else? What else did I do? I don't know. You did so much stuff, and we will talk about all of it. But one thing that makes me feel really good is every time you bring up a new thing, in my head I'm like, I have that in my Degrassi collection. I am curious about, you know, you started on the show as very small. How did the publicity role change and grow as the show continued to change and grow? That's an interesting thing because at first, like, we did get some publicity before we had me deliberately doing it I mean sometimes the star like they would call the star and say we're having a new season coming on or a new episode so there were some small mentions in the star week magazine particularly and then I guess when I first came on my real thing was just make a press kit and then field calls from or even call certain journalists and say what tapes can I send you it was all videotapes in those days I kept trying to insist that one of the main television critics at the Globe and Mail I said you have to see this and he said, well, I don't review children's shows. And I said, but it's not really a children's show. Like I said, yes, it, it has child protagonists, but it's something different. You haven't seen this before. And I kept pushing and pushing. And finally, I said, all right, I'm going to rent a VCR. I knew about the roof entrance now um, and roll it in here. I'm gonna, what do you like for lunch? I'm bringing you the tape. You have to have lunch. And so you might as well watch something while you're eating. So he said, fine, just send me the tapes. And then a few days, well, it was unfortunately, it was about halfway through that little sixth season final. We got this great big, you might have seen it uh, in clippings, big, big picture like this, a nice review and something like a species of smallness that's refreshing or something very nice in the headline. And then it was a rave review of the show that was in the Globe and Mail and things just started to move. And then Degrassi Junior High, no one knew at first how well it would do because they were doing the whole 13 episode thing. And the Geminis were on when they were close to wrapping that first season. Nobody had any idea 
about anything at that point. We were, they were all just figuring it out. And Jan had been nominated for a Gemini, which he didn't win because they didn't have a children's category in those days. And so he was in against the other writers, oh, wow. including documentaries. It was all cramped into one category. He didn't expect to win. But when he came on set the next day, the whole cast just broke and ran over to congratulate him for being nominated and for, you know, saying, sorry, you didn't win and stuff like that. And I, I suspect later that might have been orchestrated, <laughs> but it was really nice anyway. That is so beautiful. I love how a win is still a win. Recognition is still recognition. That's cute. Yeah. And then, and then you see, it was just after that that they started airing on Sunday afternoons. So, so people, adults, could watch them because they weren't at work. Whereas before, I'd be after school kind of stuff. And then they suddenly bumped into the 8.30 time slot. And that was a Bonfit Sons doing. And that was the whole brand muffin and stuff that we're talking about. And the first lead in was Kate and Allie. But then we had Fresh Prince of Bel Air as the lead in. And so that, and I heard that um, Fresh Prince was more popular in Canada than it was in the States. Oh, really? That makes sense. I was a fan. People would say, I'll watch those two shows together because they kind of went together. They were students in schools. And That's interesting. But I think it was really the move to prime time that made the difference. But that review in the Globe and Mail was very important too. Wow, that is so cool to hear about. And I, I'm also curious about, you know, Degrassi's tackling these issues, HIV AIDS, homosexuality, you know, teen pregnancy and sex. Did When you were promoting this show, did you face any pushback from the topic specifically that they're covering? Sometimes in a way, but it was, I, I know when we did the first abortion episode, I contacted the YWCA because they deal with stuff like that and said what's your protocol if people call in and complain and stuff so we got a whole protocol put together for the people answering phones at the office and any all of our actors in case they were approached in malls around the street or something like that what to do and say if anybody says anything so we actually anticipated that we didn't get a single phone call (laughs) oh my gosh now in the states we got a little bit more Uh, we would get some feedback because it was on pbs and we would get some feedback from uh, some U.S. people that didn't like, uh, there was one person who was very upset about uh, black and white character kissing. Certainly abortion raised a few hackles, but they're, you know, they're a different, it's a different kind of landscape in the States from what it is here. When it comes to preparing the kids for that, I'm specifically remembering, I've seen so many clips of a young Amanda Steptoe fielding questions from adults about teen sex and like, when are my kids ready to have it? And, and your experience with being pregnant. How do you, as the publicist, go into preparing a teenager for those questions? Well, it was interesting with Amanda because she's very good at just being herself. Mm. And she would just say, I don't know, I'm just an actor, you know, <laughs> she didn't actually need all that much prepping. Like the, she was, she was saying like, I'm not here to give you like sex, sex advice just because my character had sex on the show. You know, she, she was always very private. She never said whether she had or hadn't or anything like that. I think that I didn't have to prep her. She was pretty good on her own. She was the oldest actor that we had of the whole main cast. And she was, so she was probably slightly more mature and able to handle that. Um, she was the only one of the very few who was not actually playing her own age. Mm, that's so interesting. So her own maturity in life made it so she could just like be a whiz and handle that kind of stuff. Yeah, she just seems she has a lot of she's very self-possessed. She still is. And um, she knows who she is and she'll talk about what she wants to talk about. And she's not rude about saying I'm, I'm not going there. You know, I love that. Good for Amanda. I got to go with her to England for a week. That was so much fun. 
you know what? That was literally my next question was going to be that part of your job was touring with the Degrassi kids, whether it be visiting schools, you might go to UNICEF where they're ambassadors, Gemini Awards. And I wanted to ask if you had any standout memories of traveling with these kids and, and doing these kind of press tours. Well, Amanda had said to me one day, if you ever get asked to go to England, pick me. So when we did get asked to go to England, I thought, I wonder if they would like Spike. Um, because mostly we traveled with two. We always said, we, you don't get, people would call and say, can we get Joey? And I'd say, uh, we pick who you get and you're going to yeah. take two. Yeah. And you pay for my travel as well because they're kids and they can't travel by themselves. Yes. Uh, we got into a bit of trouble when we were going to the States one time. I was with Stacy and Pat. And, you know, we were merely going to get on the plane. And they said, um, you're not their parent. You know, oh. they can't, you can't cross the border with them. So they took us into a room where we had to look at a picture of Ronald Reagan and they and we had to I had to call back to playing with time and we were able to fax a letter from Linda saying what it was all about because we just were going we didn't have any yeah you know credentials or anything but um, then we were meeting Linda and Neil in LA it was for the PBS launch and, and they did let us on the plane but it was quite funny Oh my God, they're like, you're abducting children right now. Like, you can't do this. <laughs> exactly. So, but with, with Amanda, the other problem was that they didn't know they were paying for me. So I had to buy my own ticket on the, on the spot. Um, fortunately, I had a high-end American Express card and I was able to pay for it, a plane ticket. So because we paid cash for one of the tickets, they put us in the dome on the 747. So we were like in first class. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. I, I also know that you also have appeared in interviews yourself. I know there's one on, on YouTube that I've watched before called Switchback, where you did a tour around the Degrassi Junior High set. And you told a story that I would love for you to share to my listeners about how there was a locker on the set of Degrassi Junior High that wasn't a real locker. And there was a hole in the back of it. Can you tell us about that fun fact? Well, it was actually, yeah, it was junior high where they had that. They may have had it at high as well, but those lockers that you see in the halls of the school of junior high, they're very movable. And so it looks like they're in different halls. They're always in the same hall. They just change around the locker so it looks a little bit different. That's the magic of television, cool. right? Mm -hmm. And one of them was backless. So that if a person opened their locker to look in and grab something, you could do a shot that looks like me right now, um, that you're looking straight at me. Yeah. And the person, of course, is oblivious to the camera. Um, but so as you could get those shots of like someone was in the lo locker looking out at the person looking in. That I think is so cool. I remember watching that interview and thinking, oh, like, it's a fun Degrassi fact that I had no idea about, never heard of before. So that is so cool. Well, I, that they do it on other shows too. It's just, you know, television tricks. That's yeah. What they do. That is really neat. I like that. Is there any other fun little facts that you think Degrassi fans might not know that are just like a fun little story that you have? I'll tell you about when Amanda and I were in England. Although this is a story I've told before. Um, we were in Covent Garden where, you know, um, My Fair Lady starts mm -hmm. up. Where she, so we were there and, um, Amanda had gone, we'd gone down to Chelsea to buy her some punkish looking stuff. And so she was fully punked up. She really did wear her hair like that. That's one of the most common questions that we get. Yeah. Um, she walked into her audition with her hair like that. And so that was her character. Um, and so she walked around in real, real life with her hair like that. So she was wearing her hair as usual. And she had this new punk duds on, pants with buckles along the sides and stuff. And this American came up and I said, can I take a picture of you? I, I can't believe I'm seeing a real life British punk. And I started to laugh. I said, she's actually not British. She's Canadian, but you know, if you want, still want her picture, you know, she's okay with it, that's fine. And so he said, he started to, he said, okay. And then he said, oh, wait a minute, I know you. 
you're, you're Spike. <laughs> oh my God. He recognized her. He watched the show on PBS. That is cool. I love, and again, yeah, I hear a lot that the Degrassi cast gets the, the comment of even like, oh, I, I think I went to high school with you because they're mm -hmm. so memorable and on TV. How cool to run into Spike, a, a real British punk, right? <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, so he said it was even better to run into Spike than to see a real British punk. Wow. I love that. That's a cool story. Um, there are still so many jobs uh, that you have done on Degrassi that we've barely scrapped to the surface. And one of them is that you've appeared on Degrassi. For the fans who are looking for you, I'll tell some spots where they can find you. Uh, you're an audience member in the quiz show. You're Damon King's publicist for King of Hearts. You're a landlord uh, when Michelle gets her apartment or a renter. You won't see that on the Canadian version, though. That's only on the PBS version. Oh, I mean, the landlord. The landlord one is only on a PBS version. Oh, so some Canadians might not even know that. That's interesting. My favorite appearance that you have, of course, is one of the most classic ones where you appear with Kit Hood as one of the parents who are protesting against Spike being pregnant. I'm curious, what was it like for you when you got to act in the show? Were you excited about it? I was, you know how I'm supposed to act really mad? And I think mm -hmm. my line is something like, that girl is not staying at Degrassi. I was really mad because I don't know if you know about the principal's office. You go in through that door and you know how you've never seen inside? Yeah, there's nothing. There's a wall there. <laughs> and so we were kid and I were stuffed in this wall together with the door just ajar so we, we could fit. And so then we had to come bursting up. But meanwhile, Kit is poking me in the side and I'm like, stop it. I'm trying to get, you know, my mind in shape for this. And of course, he was he was doing it to me and he was making me irritated and not happy and fun as I more often would be. So I wasn't really excited by the time I got out there. I was mad. <laughs> so hopefully it showed and came out well on the screen. That is funny. It did. It did. And in that uh, switchback interview I mentioned, um, you guys do the tour together and you show that you open it and it's just a wall. And I, I remember hearing that it was just a wall, but I thought maybe like a little cubby, maybe like a little closet, but no, it, it is literally a wall. The door on a wall. <laughs> That's incredible. Was that was that something that you guys put there or was that part of the building? I think so. I think it was put there. The door uh, may have been in the school, but I think that they put it there on purpose. That makes sense. Because otherwise I'm gonna be like, why would that exist? <laughs> Oh, we had a fan question actually come in from Mike, who is a huge fan. He's from uh, Vancouver. He's a huge fan of the original series, loves the kids of Grass Street, loves Grassy Junior High. He was wondering if you had any worries about sometimes playing unsettling characters like parents who are protesting, landlords that might be a little racist. When it came to playing those types of characters, did you have any setbacks about that? Yeah, I, I didn't really like being the racist landlord mm -hmm. because, you know, I don't want people to think that's me. But I mean, yeah. I also know that people realize that I'm only performing and that's fine. But um, our production manager, I think I wasn't her favorite person because she was always making me play these bad people. But I <laughs> took it, you know, I took it in stride. It was fine. But it was actually a little bit upsetting because I had to stand at my own, that door that I'm at in that scene is actually my own back door oh, of my wow. own actual house. You, you see our house actually in the show more often than you know. So I had to open the door to um, Maureen, I'm with Michelle, who she's playing. And I, I'm like all sunny and nice. And oh yeah, you were looking interested about the room. And then my, I have to let my eyes just turn and realize Dio's with her. And I have to go, or BLT as you know him. And I, I was, oh, I'm sorry, it was taken. And I have to change my whole expression. Like it, it was because I saw him that I said, oh no, no, no one was available. And yeah. so what I did is I wore clothes that I didn't normally wear. Mm -hmm. and um I played the scene at, in the back and then I got changed right afterwards and I Daya was sitting on our front porch so I came around I'm going like Daya I'm really not like that I'm really not he goes oh. X Factor Catherine I know <laughs> oh that is so beautiful he uses the same thing that they get taught to tell you that it's yeah. okay that is really impactful I always wondered about things like how much harder it might be where you 
actually know the actors and have a connection with them. It feels like it might be easier to distance yourself and be like, oh, we're just actors when you're kind of strangers. But to be like a kid that you help, I mean, you help get them to the airport, you help get on plane, you help them sign autographs. Now you have to treat them this way fictionally. I always wondered what that relationship was like. Yeah, it is. I mean, I really did have to speak to him. I did have to sort of touch base with him afterwards so that yeah. there would could be no residual of that fake feeling that I was trying, you know, showing. Like, I'm not an actor. I'm not a trained actor or anything. But I just tried to let go of myself inside and, and say, they need a person who's going to look welcoming and they're not welcoming. And so I'm going to do that for them. You want to know Michelle moves into the, uh, the place that she does move into. Before she does that, she spends the night over at um, Alexa's house. Yes. That's the front of my house. Oh, that is so cool. Just at the front door there. I know the facts of like, this is Lucy's house or this is where Wheels' house is, but I had no idea that that was your house. That is so freaking cool. Well, I mean, we only ever use the exterior of our house. They never filmed the inside, but they've used the front door, the back door. And also if you go back to Brian Runs for Help in Kidza and uh, Scooter, not Scooter, um, what was he called? In uh, Benjamin. Benjamin is looking out the window. Yeah. <gasps> is it that window? Oh. Okay, that is the coolest thing ever. Okay, gotta, like, <laughs> gotta calm down the fandom mode. That is so freaking cool. Did, did having those kind of experiences of, of being an actor on the show help you connect with the kids in any way now that you were like, oh, I understand what it's like for you to guys to go through this? Almost all of the crew was on the show sometime or another. It was kind of a treat to be set, you know, sort of tagged and said, want to be somebody's mom? Want to be, you know, a, a, a racist landlady? Uh -huh. Want to be a prostitute? That was never me, but other people got to do <laughs> things like that. And, um, you know, so it was actually kind of like the cops are often crew members, people, clerks and uh, shoppers are, are crew members, editors and things like that. So it was kind of a so cool. part of the grown-ups experience was to just drop in on it, get your toes wet. And, but I think because I was working with them as publicity that was more where I connected with them mm -hmm. because they always you know they mostly like to do publicity so they were always like excited when I would call them and say it's your turn now and then because we would travel like to different cities and stay overnight in hotels like we would just like stay up laughing all night long until we just dropped dead and then we get up the next morning and do it all again and it was we would come home absolutely exhausted from it that is a really cute story. I think that's really wholesome. And even still, uh, you've still done so much more. I'm going to I'm gonna list another credit to your name is you have written Degrassi episodes. Every season, you would sit down and write one episode of Degrassi. And those are Smokescreen, where Rick joins the Environmental Action Committee. Censored, which you appeared in, where Spike is being kicked out of school for being pregnant. 20 Bucks, where Melanie steals money from her mom to go to a concert. Just Friends, where Heather does whatever she can to get closer to wheels. And I have to say, this is genuinely one of my all-time favorite episodes of Degrassi ever. The all-nighter, where the girls have a sleepover and they try pop for the first time. Even to the point that I had, um, I decided to throw a Degrassi watch party event. And I was like, we are watching this episode because it's one of my favorites. But I'm curious, how, how does it come up that you're going to write one episode a year? Well, I had ambitions to be a writer. And, um, you know, that was just how I got into publicity and stuff, because that's all, a lot of that's writing and stuff. And I had actually submitted an idea for Kids of Degrassi Street really early on that they didn't accept. Um, but they had, when they started Degrassi Junior High, they uh, had a, Yan was hired to be, you know, the main coordinator on that. And they had put out a, a call for writers. It was sent to people that they had chosen, like local poets and people like that. And I really wanted to, I didn't get one of these invitations, but I wanted to just audition anyway. So I put together what they had to do and submitted it. And they said, this is Catherine, isn't it? 
<laughs> and well, Yan knew it was me, but and because and, I, I told him I was doing it, and Kit figured out my style from press release writing. Mm. They liked, they liked it, and they, but they didn't love what I had. But they thought that I showed like I had potential. So they said, yes, I could write one. Um, and that the one that we I auditioned with was somehow ended up being the one with um, when Melanie. Needs doesn't have a bra or something like that. It was that the great race, yes. So that that stuff ended up in the show, but I think we were all doing kind of the same concepts so they could compare. So then they said, "Okay, we've got an episode for you. Rick quits smoking." So I'm like, "Okay, that's fine. It's a good cause." And so I worked on drafts and drafts and drafts of an outline, drafts and drafts and drafts, and they kept saying, "Well, yeah, it's almost in it." I wouldn't give up, you know, I wouldn't just say, okay, fine, I can't do this. Yeah. And so um, I, I had finally, they kept saying, yeah, Rick has to stop smoking. I said, finally, I said, look, I've been working this this material. No kid this age is going to be stopping smoking anytime soon. Mm -hmm. just, if you've taken up smoking in grade seven, you're not going to stop in grade seven. Mm -hmm. You might stop in high school or something, but it just isn't in a kid's psychology. And they said, people can say, well, what if his grandmother was dying of lung cancer? I said, that wouldn't stop. A kid like Rick, yeah, it just—it's just not doable. So finally, we, they sort of said, "Well, we'll leave it in for now," kind of thing. So we went. Then we finally got into drafts and things like that. And it was this whole thing where you had to do a fifth draft if you were going to get the production fee at the end. Mm -hmm. And I was deemed to have done a fourth draft, but not the fifth. And they said, "Okay, fine, we'll call it the fifth. So I did get the production fee, and then Yan took it over, and he went, came back to me one day and said, "You're right." You can't make Rick stop smoking. You just oh. can't. So he doesn't in the end. Um, yeah. And I was so frustrated with the experience because, you know, I'm at, at work. I have to, you know, deal with my boss and I come home and the same guy is my husband. And <laughs> so I was also able, though, to say, hey, listen, when you're critiquing people, make sure you say something nice first. Yeah. And rather than just diving into all the things that need to be done wrong, because he was new at his job, too. Right. And so, so it be became a standard joke with, yeah, I would start the meeting off with saying to me and other writers, well, it's nicely typed. <laughs> that was the nice thing he could say. So that became kind of a sort of a standard running joke with the writers and so on. So I said, well, I'm never doing that again. That was the most awful experience. So the next year I said, well, you know, I could maybe do it a little better next time. And so that was when uh, I did Censored and I felt it did, that did work better. And then in the final season, when we got to the all-nighter, uh, I said, I want to do one more. Like by the time I'd done censored, they said, okay, you can do one. But I didn't have time to do more than one in the season because I had other tasks right. to do. And because they really take an awfully long time to, to really get it right. It takes a lot of time. I mean, even Yannick was very, very experienced by the end, it still took him a lot of time to get it where it needed to be. Right. So I said, you know what, you know, what we haven't done on this show? We haven't had a girl sleepover. And I said, there's a sort of amazing energy flow in a sleepover it starts off everybody's like excited and having fun and blah 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 and then it gets into a kind of a quieter part of the evening where people start like talking about things or maybe playing truth or dare a little bit and eventually everybody one by one they fall asleep and that whole thing and then in the morning it's all like, what happened and and I don't know if you beat sleepovers like that but that's yes. I think all sleepovers have that sort of rhythm and yeah. sometimes it's all sparklers between people and things like that so then, you know, you always have to have three plots, right? So because it was all lighter, the other plots had to be nighttime plots too. So I got Michael Bockett, who's Linda's brother. He was in the office one Saturday. And I said, script me a poker game. Just tell me and I'll write it down. Um, here's what I need to happen. So this poker game was actually 
fed to me by Michael, uh, all the moves and who would bet what and things like that. And then I made it into the storyline stuff. I'm glad you liked that episode because I've had people say that to me before too, that they liked it because it wasn't preachy about the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the episode that if I could put myself in an episode of Degrassi, that's the one that I would want to be in because everybody was just having fun and they still get their their uh, point across about the topics that they're talking about. But it was just such a, it perfectly, I think, embodied what a sleepover is where it's just, and even sometimes you have these, you meet, you're friends with these people, but you have these connections at a sleepover that are just so different where they go so much deeper. And I think they really captured all sides of that. And even Arthur is now hanging out with them, the conversations that are happening at the girls' sleepover. So I, yeah, if I could put myself in one episode, it would absolutely be Well, fun. the other nice thing about that was they had a woman direct it. So obviously she probably been to girls' sleepovers in her growing up time, uh, Eleanor. And I called her the next morning after it aired. And I said, Eleanor, thank you. I said, you probably don't get this from writers too much, but you made exactly the show that I had in my head so she obviously recognized that sleepover thing and uh I said just I I, you couldn't I couldn't have asked for uh, a more exact image of what I had the movie that was in my head I that is so majestic and I I also one of my fun facts about that episode is telling people how um Rebecca who played Kathleen she's the one who finds the drugs and brings them to the party and then uh, she grows up to work in that exact field of researching cannabis and youth harm reduction um so it's it's funny that her character majoritively has most of the drug episodes and then grew up to work in that field so I think it's another part of the system of Degrassi and how it works well and it could even be that it started getting her thinking about those things yeah um, because of having to deal with those lines the idea of putting them in the tampon machine though that wasn't mine that was yes <laughs> oh really yeah oh that is a cool fun fact I like that and actually there's lots of fun things about that like an awful lot although there's a certain name on every script there's usually little bits and pieces that have come from other people you know people who've been critiquing it and say well wouldn't it like 20 bucks the last line didn't used to be 20 bucks it was would you like to buy some concert tickets and then uh, Angela Bruce said she should say 20 bucks to just drive that point home. And yeah. I thought, oh, I wish I'd thought of that, you know, but uh, so all over the place, there's a little, a line here and a line there that somebody has just suggested in conversation or that wasn't actually the, the screenwriter's idea, but that they said that belongs here. Wow. That is so cool. And it's cool to hear these specifically about the episodes that I love so much. It's cool to hear these, all these little stories of how they got together. Uh, we had a question come in from Shane from Australia, and we've talked about it a bit because we've talked about Yan, married to the head writer of Degrassi. Um, but we know Yan has shared a lot about his writing style, how he prepares for an episode, how he works with the cast. We've seen amazing clips of him talking to Neil Hope about the his the his parents passing away in the show. Um, Shane wanted to know specifically about your writing style and how you sat down to prepare for an episode. What did your style look like at the time? Well, I suppose it was different each one. Like I kind of told you what happened with um, Smoke Smokescreen. And then um, the uh, uh, the other one that uh, censored was um, a slight riff on a very, very old teenage book that I had read years ago. Um, and it was about a girl who had done something that she shouldn't have done and how somebody else writes in the newspaper about it and she gets mad. Like it was just, it was not the same story, but it was just that little germ of the idea that one person thinks they're doing the right thing and it turns out not to be the thing the other person wants. Like they think they're defending them. Yeah. And they the person say, just get out of my face, you know? Yeah. And that little idea was just a small incident in the book that I had read many years ago. So that's where that sort of emanated from. The one we haven't talked about is just friends. Mm. And, um, I think that, you know, when I was a teenager, I liked a lot of boys and they didn't always like me back. And um, I think that that's a pretty common experience and the other way around too, um, or even girls and girls and boys and boys. But it, it was 
it was something that was a very, I thought I wasn't the only person who must have experienced this. It must mm-hmm. be very common. So I kind of wanted to do a story like that where you think that you got through to the guy and it turns out you were just making out at a party and he didn't think anything Good about thing. it. Yeah. Um, but then, then we were sort of looking at a subplot that had involved Yik and so on. And um, it, we couldn't get, yeah, and I was sitting in the, in the living room just talking about my script. Like I hadn't really started writing it yet. Yeah. And they, Kid and Linda had, they were, I don't wouldn't say they were burning out, but I think they were starting to feel they didn't have to have their fingers on everything. And so they kind of let Yan run a little bit more with, and they said, whatever Catherine wants to write an episode about, she can do it. Let her decide. Well, we don't have any plan for her. Yeah. So I said, okay. Um, and so this Yik and Arthur thing wasn't really working out. Um, and then, well, I looked and I said, you know, we've never really done a good story about Maya. And so we went, went up this, the set where they filmed Degrassi High is walking distance from our house. And so we just wandered up there and we went in, we grabbed the wheelchair and we started rolling around the school, looking for ideas, what's hard, what's easy. And it, I started to think about a girl I had gone to school with who was uh, hard of hearing. And I wasn't close friends with her, but neither was really anybody. And I remember I wanted to know if I could ask her to go to the movies together, like say, hey, do you want to go and see such and so movie? But I didn't know how to phone her. And I never asked. Mm-hmm. You know, I just let it slide. And I thought, what, what did she think about that? Did she ever know that I, she couldn't have known that I thought that. Yeah. Did yeah. she ever think, well, I guess I can't go to the movies with anybody because I can't hear very well. Or did she think, I wish people would ask me if I could come to the movies or I wish people would asked me to go because I can't hear well enough for the movies. Yeah. I don't know what her actual answer, what was going on with her, but I thought, what's it like to be the kid with the disability that the other kids are too shy to find out how I could, how they could accommodate me. And so I wanted to sort of go back and say, sorry, Trish, I should have been more sensitive. And so I'm, that's what I had happened to Maya that she didn't, doesn't get asked to the movies. And that's the only one Stacy's not in is that I wrote. Oh, oh yeah! You're, I didn't even realize that. You're so right. But the movie they go to see is called Princess in Exile, and the reason Stacy wasn't in that episode was because she was in Montreal filming a fi- film called Princes in Exile. So I, that's why I put Stacy in, because of all my scripts, she's always in them. That is so okay. I love all those fun facts. That is so cool, and I love that you get to take you know, these internal feelings that we all have and we all wonder and turn them into a script because that was an episode that really made an impact with me when I was a kid of thinking about, oh, how do other people feel when I'm trying to be considerate about maybe disabilities they have or things that they have going on when really it's it's me being ignorant by just assuming that they can't do certain things. So it's so nice that to take these kind of confusing internal feelings that you're not know how, don't know how to talk about and put them in a TV show like Degrassi. I think you really hit it with that kind of episode. Well, I do hope that it, it, you know, what I was hoping was that some other kids would see that and think, you know, we really should find out what our friend can do and not do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't really explain to them how they would go about doing that, but it sort of raised the question at least. It starts the conversation. Exactly. And I know on top of um, writing these scripts that you worked on, I know that you also did something called, I believe it's called Reader's Reports, where you would comment on the strengths or weaknesses of a script or offer solutions when needed. Do you have any memories of the times where you might have offered advice on someone else's strip that made an impact in the show? I, I, I critiqued Yan even. Like I sometimes read his scripts. Oh, wow. Um, which is not something you would normally find um, the, a junior writer reading the senior writer's uh, scripts and, and also others like Susan and so on. Um, it was pretty secret that I did that in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that people, 
Yan knew, mm. uh, but other writers weren't told that I might be reading their scripts. So that, and I was told, don't say anything. You don't want to cause any tension between you. Like mm. some people wrote more scripts than I did. And so why is this whippersnapper doing, you know, but also oh, I had the advantage of living in the house with Yan where he would so often talk through his ideas with me just to get himself organized. Like you, writers generally don't work only in their heads, especially for TV, there's meetings, there's discussions, and then there's casual conversations that we would have while having dinner or something like that. And so I would, I don't remember any specific thing, but I, it would usually be sort of, sort of, it's going really, really well here, but somehow the ending isn't quite satisfying enough. And it, it, I feel that we need to have more of this in order to make that make more sense. It, it was usually fairly generalized kind of comments rather than she should say 20 bucks at the end of the episode. It was usually more sort of, we need more danger here for this to be a really satisfying ending. That, and then they, the writers themselves would come up with how to do that. That's so interesting. And they didn't always follow everything I said, but they, it was just to have an extra pair of eyes. Another That makes a lot of sense. That's so cool to know about how many different eyeballs certain things go through and how, like you said earlier, about how someone's name might be on a script, but everybody has a piece in it. Yeah, I mean, you know, people say, oh, the kid, I mean, it's well known that the kids had in, input to the, mm. the scripts. They never wrote any of them. Like writing a script is a monumentally difficult task to really get it right that, so that it's good enough for to be broadcast. Um, you can write a cute play that you do at your high school on the stage and because you all know each other and you all get what you're talking about. It can be really, really fun and satisfying, but it isn't the same kind of complexity that you need for a uh, a real TV episode, like all of the pieces have to fit perfectly. It can't just be like, well, there was a rule about no Libneys. Wouldn't it be nice if? So everything had to make sense. Everything had to come from the real situation. That's one of the reasons my favorite episode is Bad Blood, because each part of that story drives the next one. And the whole thing with Joey wants the car and Darren, or what's he called, Dwayne, wants to stymie him. Right. And, and this all ends up flowing into the fight where he says, you want this, you know, and Joey, yeah, he'd love to kill a guy, you know, he, but then he realizes, he say, I, you don't want my blood on you. Yeah. And at the end, they, they have this sort of compact that he'll stop bugging him if he won't tell. And it all goes back to that very first shot where he's looking at the car. You're right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really lovely build. That, that's my favorite. It's a double episode, but it's my favorite. And this is one of the things that I love about talking to people like you from the show is because now when I watch Degrassi again, I'm going to have a whole new layer of understanding to it and a whole new viewpoint of paying attention to those those stepping stones of how we go from the car to the fight to these kind of things. And it's, it's so interesting now. I'm so excited to go back and watch Bad Blood and, and really pay attention to those kind of, kind of things. That is so well, cool. and also it's not just the people in, like, as I was starting to say, the kids did, did have, you know, they would get, give feedback after a first read through. Once yeah. the script was basically done, They'd read it through, you know, all this, I'm sure. And then they would comment on their role or what they saw other people doing. And those things would be taken back and some would be used and some would be changed a bit and used anyway. And then the, the scripts would go off to broadcasters and stuff. And they often had all kinds of great ideas um, that they would say, well, like that 20 bucks was, was a producer that suggested that one last line. It wouldn't have been a bad episode without it, but it made the whole thing go click. Right. 20 bucks, now we know the title why the reason for the title, how this $20 thing goes all the way through the, the script. And by putting that on the end, she made the thing that just made it sort of shine at the end instead of just the other episode. Yeah, and gave that, oh, I love that. You also, I also own these and I'm so proud of this. You also uh, worked on something called the Degrassi Digest. Can you tell the listeners what that was and how it came about? And what was the goal for creating those? Yeah, that was a kind of part of the educational outreach idea. 
Um, and so that was, we created those newspapers. They were fun to work on. They were a lot of work. And we sent them out free to schools all across the country. And we sent out questionnaires and tried to get feedback. And in the end, I'm not sure how much of an impact they really made. But they were they were fun and they were nice to do. They were just through quizzes and things and um, mostly made up by me, sometimes gotten from other people, but just stuff for kids to do because we knew that the schools were buying sets and that the teachers needed materials for the students. And so it was, I think there was some sort of government grant for that as well. And it was fun, but it wasn't a highlight particularly for me. I, I remember when I got my hands on them, I was so stoked because I'd never seen anything like this before. It's like a little Degrassi newspaper with like, there's even like quizzes and crosswords and stuff in there. And I thought it was interesting that because you got to see some of the actors actually wrote stuff up and kind yeah. of hear their, from their own voice. By that time, they were getting a little older. They were in high school and they were, you know, capable of doing things that they couldn't have done when they were younger. Yeah. So um, we obviously looked for their input and uh, the quizzes were fun to put together. And so every now and then I find those things. And I, Yeah, and I try to do the quizzes and see if we can remember the answers. That is so fun. We usually do pretty well. We usually do pretty well. I believe it. The, the way that you're able to recall so many stories is always so incredible to me. I know I go into a lot of these interviews being like, they're probably going to say, I don't remember that. And everyone always has an answer for me. It seems I just remember everything. They Maybe we just are making it up as we go along. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You also, in terms of writing, uh, on top of writing episodes, also wrote books for Degrassi. You wrote two Degrassi Junior High character books. Uh, I'll explain them for the, the listeners. You wrote one about Joey Jeremiah, who wants to be a rock star, but first has to handle flunking the eighth grade. And Maya, who wants to feel like a normal teenager and get a summer job but faces difficulty because she's in a wheelchair, which I know that book also won an award. But I'm curious, how did it then come up that now you're going to write books for Degrassi? Yeah, and I were on holidays and we we're having dinner on our first night away. And he said, there's something I want, I need to talk to you about. And I said, what? And he said, well, they're ta talking about having Degrassi books. And he said, would you like to write one? And I said, I'd love to write one, but shouldn't you be doing that? And he said, they asked me to, but I said, I think that would be Catherine's area so they actually ended up having me write what's called the bible for those books which is like the rules of the game like that there can't be any scene with adults with no kids in it same as the show um and so I put that together and then I sort of said could I do Joey and because Pat and I were really good friends still are and um so I really wanted to to do him because I knew he was a popular character and what I did there was I just picked up from the scene where he fails grade eight which is in the in the episode then took him into the summertime. Wow. So I, I figured the easiest thing to do is tell a summertime story so that it, you know it can fit into the Degrassi world. Yeah. So, and I included that even that same scene. It's word for word at the scene from the show, but then with, of course, descriptions and stuff in it. And then, I mean, I was pretty busy with other things, but I did want to do another one. And I was wanted to do Maya again, some of the same idea with, I mean, again, I was good friends with Kira and, and I thought she was a character that probably could have done with a, more of a higher profile because she was the only disabled character that we seemed to have on the show. And so she was kind of representing all of that world. And I thought we should tackle it a bit more. And I wrote a really, I went to a summer camp down on Lake Erie and um, spent the whole day there with bunches of disabled kids. It was an Easter Seals thing. Got all kinds of notes met all kinds of really cool and interesting young kids with disabilities, talked to them really openly about their experiences and stuff like that, came home, wrote this fantastic book about how Maya goes and becomes a camp counselor. Mm -hmm. And then she falls into a, disuse, a cabin disused basement and, and has to get herself. And the editor and I just finally said, after all of this, it doesn't work. 
So I started oh. again. Oh my gosh. And I'm changed the whole thing. So she now is still a summertime story. Yeah. But now she and Caitlin decide to get summer jobs and the difficulties that she runs into. And it was around the time of that Supreme Court judge. Now it's silly. If I thought about this, I would be able to tell you, but it's blanking. <laughs> uh, I, I'll call you up at three in the morning and tell you what it was. But there Please was a, a big court case going on at the time about sexual harassment. So that's why I decided to put that in. And when I was a um, teenager, I worked in a snack bar, which Maya does. And there was a guy who used to come down from the Toronto office. And all the girls said, don't ever be in a room alone with him. <gasps> and I never was. And I didn't have any problems, but I knew what they were saying. So I decided to commemorate him in my book. And so he's the, he's the guy who's called Scotty in the book. Wow. So that came from the, not quite my real life experience, but from things that I remember from my teenagers. For people who haven't read the books, I'll, I'll give them a little bit of an insight that the books aren't necessarily a translation of what happens in the show. You take a nugget from the show, like Joey flunking or maybe Maya having some difficulties, and then you expand with a whole new world and whole new characters. And I was have always been curious when it comes to the difference between writing for television and writing for a book, is there a different set of rules? Can you get away with more things? What are the big differences when you're thinking about that story versus one that's going to be on TV with broadcasters? You have to know what voice you're writing in. Um, and mm -hmm. so they're all written in the third person that, uh, limited. So that they were like, Joey said this, Joey thought that. Um, but you, if Wheels comes into the scene, we can't hear if Wheels has thoughts. That is, That rule was broken once in the series, which I won't even say which one it was because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. Um, <laughs> but they, in the Bible, it said it's third person limited. So mm -hmm. that was one of the main rules. So you have only the thoughts of your character, but all the actions of everybody, but only that person's response to everything. And that is a little different from a movie where you don't have anybody's interior. Because in a movie, you're always looking from the outside. Right. You can guess what they're feeling by how they react, what their facial expression is, but you don't know what they're thinking. Whereas in a book, you can write down, Joey was really upset. His mother had never said something like that to hurt him before. Yeah. And where we can only get that from Pat's acting and the director's choices and editing, of course. So you, you have to make sure that the audience can figure it out when you're writing a script because you want the director to figure it out and make sure that he gets that from the actor and from the scene. I found Kit uh, is a very, I don't think Kit ever directed one of my scripts, but I've seen scripts that he, that, like uh, Ryan Rents for Help is actually one of them. When I read the script, which Jan wrote, then when I saw the movie, Kit had made it exactly how I had seen the movie in my head. So obviously Jan was very good at expressing what it was supposed to be like, and Kit was very good at understanding what it was supposed to be like. And I'm sure they had conversations and discussions and stuff. Um, but when in a book, there's no director, there's no scene, you know, Judy isn't there to fix up the sets for you. <laughs> you know, you have to say whether the room was messy or, or tidy or whether there were rock star posters or a whole bunch of Degrassi pictures behind them. You have to describe all that. So that part comes in and because you have to be all of the people, the director, the set director, the actors wow. and everything. So it's not harder or less hard. It's just different just different that is so interesting I like hearing about that and we actually about books had a question come in from Sierra who like if you had a question about what happened in what book in the Degrassi Junior High series they're the one who would tell you they know everything and they uh have always wanted to read the book that never came out Arthur and Yick do you know why that book never came out what was the story supposed to be about anything like that about Arthur and Yick I can tell you all about that because that was going to be mine too um no okay well Please tell me. <laughs> uh, again I was very good friends with Seelock so and I thought we hadn't seen much of him so I was going to do a subplot in an episode called Just Friends about Yick and Arthur. So when that didn't happen, 
because I got it was about about um, swarming, which was going on. Uh, kids would get swarmed for their like running shoes and stuff like that, and say oh. a park or whatever. Gangs of other kids would come and steal their stuff, and it was a problem in Toronto around that time. So I made an appointment at the police station and went in to talk to them about you know what is it, what you know what's it like, what's realistic, and to make sure that I made a realistic portrayal. Like, we always did that with anything we were doing. We went and talked to people who really knew the scene and could tell you. You know, how prevalent is it? Is it part of a, the larger American gang system? No, it, it wasn't. Um, and things like that. And, you know, anything like suicide and that, they were always going to experts and stuff like that. So in addition to all these people contributing story ideas, stuff, all the other stuff was well-researched. So I was going to do this story about Yick and Arthur kind of having a falling out because Yick has become one of these swarming kids and they swarm Arthur. And the question is like, what does he do? like that's his friend how can he stop the swarming gang should he join in and it's that's his big dilemma in that story and that was going to be the subplot that became the Maya subplot in Just Friends and that was going to be the story for the book wow and did you actually start writing that book I think I may have done an outline for it or that may have just been the subplot thing that I did I think I did a, a very short outline for it but by the time that we were getting to that, the actual series was coming to an end. And I think that the publisher felt there wasn't going to be any renewed interest in the book. So they didn't right. want to publish new ones. That's so interesting. I think that they could have, but because it did go into reruns and continued popularity. Mm-hmm. So those books would have been there. But that was a story. And that is so cool. I'll tell you that Yik does the right thing. <gasps> I this is I had no idea that you um were the person who was gonna write that. Like to me, this has been another one of those lost media things of like we've seen that it was advertised, even in some of the books it says the Arthur yeah. and Yick, and it's not there. I, I honestly don't remember the, the how it all worked out, but I think it was just because when the series itself came to an end, yeah, they felt that the demand was going to dry up and there was no point in bringing out new products. Um, I think that they were was wrong. wrong. They were wrong. But then <laughs> interestingly, the editor. My, there were a couple of editors with Lorimer on that series and my editor, uh, they, she left the company and formed a new company with some other editors called uh, Boardwalk Books. And they decided to, that they would hire me to write a series of books about kids who work on a television show. And I wrote the first one and it got published and you can probably find it if you look hard enough. It, it was The first book was all that we ever did. We even have a little excerpt from the second book in the back and it I never wrote the second book oh my I, God. I plotted it but I never wrote it what was the name of the first book I couldn't find it here Hold on. oh please do oh this is so cool the acting oh my gosh okay fun fact I found that on eBay because I googled you of course I looked up every credit you have and I have that being shipped to me and I'm gonna be able to read it that is yeah. so cool so this is based on very very loosely on Degrassi that is so very, cool. very loosely. That is so loosely. Cool. And in the back, here's a little excerpt from the next book. Oh my god, it doesn't book, exist. It has was plotted, but never, never saw the light of day. But never exists. That is so freaking cool. We're still not through all of the books that you read or wrote written for Degrassi. You also created Degrassi Generations, the 411 guide. Can you give everyone an insight? What is that book and what was the goal with creating that? Here's the book. Uh, this is the Canadian version. The American one's green. Um, is there any differences between the two? Or just not that? inside, just the covers. The cover. Interesting. <laughs> the cover, you want to see the American cover? Yes, I do. I love this. I love them getting a full tour, full book tour. Oh, that's so cool. This is the one that plays up the new, the next generation cast. 
And this one is sort of split between the two. Oh, interesting. Oh, I didn't even notice. That's so, so you can see the, those are next generation kids and those are, well, I the really four are next and the two are older ones. And on the back, it's also split. It captures the generations. That's so cool. And how uh, whereas come they, about? They emphasize the newer version because Nickelodeon was involved at this point and they, mm. it was PBS before. And um, on the back, you see they have Pat and Stacy grown up because they were in the series as well. That is so It's cool. a little different, but the interior is identical. I was invited to a little meeting about the fact that there was, no, it wasn't a little meeting. It was a big meeting uh, about the fact that there was going to be a 25th anniversary kind of do about the show. Yeah. And I'm not sure why I was invited because I was having nothing to do with it. I think they were sort of saying, we might be picking your brains a little bit. Mm. So they said, and announced that this um, well-known newspaper reporter in Toronto was going, who I knew and liked, uh, was going to be writing it. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. And then I sort of went home thinking, well, why didn't they ask me? So that afternoon, I got, I figured it was a call or an email or something from uh, Linda saying, would you like to co-write it with Kathy? I said, oh, that would be a dream because she's a journalist. She, I'm going to learn so much from her about how to do that kind of thing. And then she dropped out. And to this day, I don't know why. Then I was told that I was doing it on my own. I was teaching full time. And by this time, so I said, okay, I'll do that. There's time to do that when you're teaching and marking and all of that. So I thought, great, let's get it rolling because I can get on it and get it done in the summertime because that's the joy of summer. You, you like teachers do have things they do in the summer, but it's not the same kind of pressure. Um, and so I thought, okay, let's get going. So we, Jan and I spent the whole summer in the basement. I have no idea what it was like watching every episode from beginning to end. It was like totally binging the entire Degrassi over, uh, over oh several weeks, weeks to do it. And we were actually really surprised at how, how well it stood up and surprised at the amount of humor there was in it. Cause it wasn't a sitcom. It didn't have a laugh track, yeah. but there were often funny little moments that happened. I wouldn't call it a funny show, but mm -hmm. there was definitely humor in it from time to time. So we were pleased to see that it was standing up well. And I was sort of waiting for my contract and waiting for my contract and waiting for my, and then school started again. So on Thanksgiving weekend, I finally now had my contract and I had to get this book done by spring. I was at zero, <laughs> except for the fact that I watched all the shows. And I was in this room. I would screech home from school, get here about four o'clock. And I would work from four till eight doing so much work. And uh, Jan would make sure the dinner was on the table at eight o'clock. This is how we ended up having an eight o'clock dinner time. Wow. Uh, he would always cook me dinner and I would be working up here either. The first thing I had to do was phone all kinds of people. I had to phone all the old actors. I had to find half the old actors because some of them were not of their old phone numbers. Mm -hmm. There a few people that I that avoided me. Mm -hmm. um, there were a few people that I found by absolute lucky chance. And so, and then having found them, what state of mind were they in? Yeah. Now, it's not, not all of them wanted to participate. And I had to see if I could persuade them that they did want to participate. So most of them I was able to do that with. There's a few that sort of, you'll, you can tell when you look through that. I either couldn't yeah. find them or they said, that's not for me, uh, which is fine. That's their right. But almost everybody said, I'd say, you may not remember me, but almost everybody said, Catherine, what are you talking about? Of course I remember you. So that was really nice. So now I'd work in here in my little office, which was also where Benjamin looked out the window. Mm -hmm. And 
things were done on Degrassi in this room because this was also my office. And I would write, mostly phoning at first and then gradually starting to write, pulling together like what the different chapters were gonna be about. Like I'm sure you, you know you and probably most of your viewers have had a look at it at some point, but there's the different segments of the book. So we had to figure out what was going to be in each segment, like the history and you know the Caitlin's hair and all those little funny features that we had in there. Yeah. Obviously, the big focus is on the actors. I went to bookstores and I looked at the ones that had been done for other shows to see what kinds of things they included. Yeah. And so I worked from four to eight every day. And then I'd probably just eat and watch TV and fall into bed. Then I'd get up the next morning, go to school, teach a whole day's work. I don't know when I did my marking. I must have done it, but I don't know how I did it. That is incredible. On the weekends, I would work probably eight or more hours. And then I was one day, I was sitting here working on something. And I was, I had the computer, uh, I was looking out Benjamin's window. I was walking across Withrow Park because I've, Jan was away and uh, one of my colleagues, uh, partner was away. So we decided to have dinner together up on the Danforth. But he said, come over and look, I've got a new house. You can have a look at the new house. So I'm walking to his house through Withrow Park. Now Withrow Park, as you may know, almost every park scene, the, the bully biting one. Yeah. yeah. Grassy talks park scenes. Withrow Park. So I'm thinking now, am I a real person writing a real true book about a fictional place that I'm actually walking through right now? Or have I gone insane? And <laughs> it really was a lot. And um, I don't think I actually wrote on Christmas Day, although I remember when Yuvin Yan was doing a script, he was writing on Boxing Day. Wow. I, and I would also spend a lot of time on the phone with my editor figuring out what to do next. She was great. And um, then I finished at Easter. So I started at Thanksgiving, finished at Easter, have no idea how I got through that school year. Wow, that's incredible. I don't know how you did that either, but I'm so thankful that you did because as someone who grew up watching The Next Generation and became interested in the history of the show, that's really the introduction guide to learning about the behind the scenes of Degrassi. There's, you cover from Bruce Mackey through, I love the part where you compared uh, Emma's day at Degrassi to Joey's day or, or Pat's and Miriam's day and what walks through it. That was really the starting point of me wanting to learn more about the history of the show. And now I've spiraled into being here and interviewing you about things like this, but, but I loved it. And, and there were so many little things that made me laugh and little stories in there. Like the actor who played Luke, I remember his fun fact was that he forged the note that got him out of school to go be an actor and those are little stories that you wouldn't hear unless someone like you called them up and was like hey what's the story you got to share so I think it's so cool that you put all of that together crazy that you did it in that way <laughs> it was really really fun actually reconnecting with all the actors because at that point we had not been like more recently we've been spending more time together there'd be more events and reasons to get together um, but that was in a period where we kind of all gone our separate ways me having to work on that book I think was the beginning of people started to think, oh, what is everybody else doing? And, and having, because we're coming together far more frequently now. But that was, uh, that was a really exhausting and exciting thing. And then when the book came out, um, I guess it was in, the, in September, yeah. uh, the, these three things happened. The book officially came out. We had a signing at the Young and Eglinton in Indigo. I had a party and I turned 50 all in like three days. So that was really super fun because it was just a super fun time to be there and all that. Wow, that is so beautiful. I had a similar experience with the mother of all Degrassi 
book launch because I got to go meet all these Degrassi fans. I was at Linda's house throwing the party where I met you. And um, the book came out on my birthday. So I also had the experience of turning 29 all in the midst of this crazy stuff happening, of these reunions happening. People from the kids at Degrassi Street to Degrassi next class were there. It was such a cool, cool experience. And uh, one thing I am curious about too is like, I know Yan had returned for The Next Generation. And with researching The Next Generation, you had this new insight into how they were making the show. Was there any... I mean, huge differences that stood out to you of like, oh my God, we didn't do that like that when we made the show. Yeah. I mean, we weren't union and we couldn't have mm-hmm. been, I mean, it wouldn't have been possible. So there were a lot of things that we could get away with that weren't dangerous or unsafe in any way, but just sort of not quite the way you really should be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it had to be that way. Unfortunately, it wasn't abused. Like, like that never, nothing bad happened because we weren't doing mm-hmm. it that way. Um, but it was very much more loosey-goosey than Next Generation. Even Stefan mentions that, I think, in the book. At least he did yeah. mention it when I was talking to him about the book. He said, you know, we were all just like a bunch of kids doing something. And like, actually, so were we. Because when we were doing that, we were probably the crew was between 10 and 20 years older than the cast. Like, it wasn't like grown-ups were running anything. And so, like, I sometimes say we didn't know what we were doing. And that's not really true. We knew what we were doing as we did it but we didn't know what it was going to be. Um, and we didn't know, like we just sort of said, okay, here's a problem. How do we solve it? Here's a problem. How do we solve it? Then it was just doing that all the time. Whereas with the newer show, it was like, there is a process. There's a protocol for this. And, we, and they didn't run into a problem because it was a protocol. So we would say, hey, this isn't going to work. So we've got to make a, a shift here. And, you know, people like me, like, who was I? I was some kid who was a book publicist you know, I'd only done book publicity for about four years. Yeah, that's interesting. This this question might be me inserting my my own maybe opinion about Degrassi Next Generation. I love every generation of the show. I love every episode. I love everything about the show. But I'm curious if, I always get curious to ask people who worked on, uh, who kind of had ties between the two worlds of the shows. Do you think that there's any way that the, the amount of structure that now came in with Degrassi Next Generation, with unions, now everything is planned out and mapped, do you think that any of the authenticity about real life and capturing real stories may have gotten lost in that transition of now everything's automated, now we have this process of we do this way? Do you, do you think any of that was lost in that transition? I would say no, but I will put a but on that. Yeah. Um, I think that the world also changed in the <sighs> same ways. And so having like cell phones around all the time, I mean, they didn't have that in early, early generate next generation, but later on, they are being authentic to the way kids are now. Mm. One way the original Degrassi wasn't authentic was it weren't in style. Um, the, the kids never wore the latest fashions because Linda was afraid of making the show look dated too quickly. Mm. Whereas the newer shows, I think they sort of said, they can wear the latest fashions, it's fine. Um, yeah. So they had all kinds of weird hand-me-downs. Like if you know what to look for, you'll see some of my old clothes on people, um, specifically so cool. on the twins and um, on Rebecca. Okay, now I'm going to look up Particularly that. around the Just Friends episode. Look there. The yes. twins black and white thing came from me giving away some black and white clothes. And they say, oh, let's give them a black and white thing. It isn't in the early episodes. If you look in the very first episodes, they're not in black and white. Yeah. Uh, that this time went on. That is so interesting. That is cool. See, again, the next thing to look for. Now, every time I watch with people, I just be like, I know, I know a fun fact about that. Well, the Rebecca's checked dress. I made that dress. You made it? I made it for myself. And then I gained a little weight, so I couldn't wear it anymore. So I gave it to the set, and they put it on Rebecca. 
and now it's part of the show's history. That is yeah. so cool. I love those <laughs> kind of fun facts. Uh, in Degrassi Generations, you specifically said, Degrassi is a television show that captured the spirit of growing up in two separate generations. I'm curious, how do you think Degrassi achieved that in both of the shows? It was, it was the combination of particularly Kit, Linda, Yan, and Angela Bruce of the CBC. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them have ties to England. Jan's not English, but he, when he was a, a young teen, lived in Holland for a while, and they would listen to Radio Caroline, which was the pirate radio out of England. And so they would, it was a movie made about it a few years ago. And they, because they, because the BBC wouldn't play like the Beatles and stuff like that. So Radio Caroline is on the water. And so they were regulated by British law. And so they could play Beatles and Dave Clark Five and the Mersey Beats and all that kind of stuff that the BBC wasn't really playing yet. So he was listening to that and he would listen to the radio plays. And um, there's one in particular called The Archers, I think it's called. And all of those people had memories of The Archers. And I think that um, they wanted to do something of that sort of British kitchen sink theater stuff that was very popular in the 60s and was continuing into the 70s, a sort of sense of realism. That was part of the style. If you look at, you know, Hollywood at that time was doing things like taxi driver in the early 70s and Mean Streets, Scorsese, and all that kind of dirty American early 70s was now sort of creeping in. And it had been in the, that dirty kind of stuff was there in England when they were all younger. So I think that that was an important influence. And I think that's why they were going for this authenticity. Another thing is that Phil, was a news cameraman before he was Degrassi. He didn't do TV before that. Oh, I did not know that. And his style of cinematography is capturing reality um, rather than making pretty pictures. And so although Kid liked making the pretty pictures, they were still done with a realistic eye that, that Phil brought to the scene. And another thing, and I think this came from Phil, though I could be Kit and Phil combined, they filmed at Kids Island. Mm-hmm. They never filmed at a teacher's height looking down on the kids. They right. always filmed pretty level. Like you, you won't see a lot of like high angle shots, low angle shots. It's kids eye level all the way through. So when you're there, you the camera is always the viewer. And so the viewer, who is the camera now, feels like they're in the hallway walking around seeing kids they know. And I think that was a really huge part of it. And I think they've kept that throughout all the seasons. I haven't seen maybe some of the later ones as much, but um, that was almost a signature of the show. There's, yeah. I'm thinking back to how many scenes they're in class and they peer up at Mr. Radich, who's giving them a lecture about something and how, yeah, how many times is at their level? And how many times have you ever seen it from Radich's viewpoint, looking down at the kids? You won't. You'll see it this way. You won't. You'll be one of the other kids in the classroom. You won't ever be Radich. Yeah. Um, you'll never get his POV in a shot. And I think I can see, I haven't scorned through looking for that exactly, but I think that I could say that you would probably never find uh, you would never. anything from an adult's point of view. You're right. Mm-hmm. And I think you even mentioned this earlier, the fact that there's no conversations between two adults unless a kid is listening in or unless a kid is nearby. And that is, I think, true throughout throughout the whole, the whole uh, thing. Yeah. Um, that was always the rule um, that, you, that nothing will happen that, it, without a kid being part of the scene. Like there's no scene without a kid in it. Yeah. Even if the parents are talking and they don't know the kid's listening, you you know the kid's listening. The kid will be seen listening. Uh, I don't think that that happened very often, but if there were two adults talking and they didn't think a kid was there, the kid would be there anyway. So you would, and it never has, the solution is never the parent or teacher 
saying what they need to do. Sometimes Ms. Avery would weigh in mm -hmm. a little bit, but that was more just saying the experience of having this wise teacher would be a helpful part of a student's life. Like, so we weren't dismissing the fact that adults had good things to say because we were adults ourselves, but saying it's more important if the kids themselves figure out where did I go wrong and what do I need to do now? Yeah. Um, and so that the kids watching would go like, Lucy shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Lucy should have just immediately changed and done this. Or Vula should not have gone along with that, which is more through the point because that was more of a Vula story of the shoplifting. Yeah. Vula should have known better. And, you know, okay, Lucy's maybe a little off the rails, but we sort of find out why because she doesn't have much guidance at home. Yeah. Uh, so she hasn't figured out, you know, Lucy hasn't figured some things out yet, but Vula should have. Yeah, that is so interesting. And I definitely think that's, the reason why I connected with the show so much as a teenager is because it was conversations at my level between like the friends that I have. And even when I was talking to Judy, I, I always use the example of the scene that she's in where uh, Spike says like, mom is a tree, can't get pregnant your first time. And her mom and Judy laugh about like all the, all the things that kids think, oh, if you keep your eyes closed, oh, if you stand up. And it's such an easy way that Degrassi has these sex ed lessons with you without preaching to you without telling you that they're teaching you about things instead it is at that kid level of overhearing your parents and learning like oh shoot I should have known that already or should have thought better and I I it's so nice to know how many of those things are just like intentional intent like you guys wanted kids to learn these things and, and take these values I'm sure that Linda has mentioned this before to you but one of the things that she was always happy to hear was when people would say oh um I watched that show with my daughter and then we were able to talk about Spike's decision parents really loved it because they didn't have to say okay it's time for the talk it was like oh look what happened on Degrassi I mean do any of your friends do that sort of thing uh have you ever heard about that happening in your school and stuff like that and then they can talk about stuff without talking about themselves yeah absolutely because you can really talk about what Lucy or Spike or Caitlin did um without ever referring to yourself you can actually get a lot more information that way where parents can get information across. So that was one of Linda's, I know that's one of Linda's favorite accomplishments about the show is having that, those conversations happen. It absolutely came through. And I even, I definitely think my conversations with my peers as teenagers changed because I had a reference point of people that felt so familiar to me going through these things. And I remember I had a personal experience. Well, my, I had a friend who, when she was very young, had to get an abortion and all of my knowledge about that came from Degrassi. And it was a conversation that I was under, like, I was understanding of what she was going through. I, I felt like I could be a, a something who she could talk to without all of that stigma of like, oh, well, you had sex as a teenager and oh, well, you have to face the consequences. Instead of like, no, you're a real person who ended up in a situation that sucks. And like, I have the, I know someone named Manny or I know someone named Erica. I know someone named Tessa who went through this and it was accessible to me. So definitely made an impact on me as a teenager of how I spoke to my friends about topics that came up and even helped me come out of the closet. I had that dialogue and that language to be like, you see that, what that character saying? That's how I feel too. So it definitely impacted my life that way, which is very cool. I bet you don't know this. The final um, six episodes of Kids of Degrassi Street, um, we went up to Linda's cottage one weekend to talk about this. It was going to have a story arc through the six episodes rather than just individual stories that there are some continuing effects with the canards and stuff like that but mm -hmm. but that one was going to be the making the yearbook and this was Linda's idea to make the yearbook so she in addition to talking to Yann about how they were going to arc that story she and I went walking I was there it was walking in Lake Huron very shallow and talking about how we would press release this there you may have seen the press kit and it says yearbook on the front it's a red one and on the inside one of the big things was that was the, the time we changed from, I think it was Thursday or Friday at 4.30 to Sunday 
at five or five thirty. I forget. Mm. So we said, I said, well, why don't we do something like to highlight that we're moving to Sundays? So we said we decided to do a coupon for the Degrassi grocery, and it said it said on it now that the kids are on Sunday, have a Sunday on the kids, and it was a coupon to get one of those like little tubs of ice cream that you could get. And Linda went and gave the people ten dollar bill and said, if anyone comes in with this coupon, just give them the ice cream. And no one ever did. Oh my god! <laughs> so if you ever see that little coupon, I did work on that. Okay. You know what's crazy is I've never seen this coupon. So now it's on my uh, Degrassi checklist to find this freaking coupon. And I think it mine would be in the basement. Someday I'm coming in that basement. <laughs> All those things that we said, someday this will be worth some money. One day we just went to Pat and said, make it into some money. So he, he, some of the things that you have, if you've gotten anything from Pat, you might've gotten some of our old stuff. There was a pink t-shirt, Degrassi Junior High t-shirt with all the girls had signed on it. We're all the main character girls. All the girls were going, someday this will be worth something. Someday. And so it, I gave it to Pat and he sold it. I forget how much we got for it, but it was worth something. That's incredible. Some cool stuff I've gotten from Pat is uh, Robert Mystician who made the opening credits. I got the whole storyboard. Stacy had kept all of her press things that you had written. So I have a nice binder all tucked away with all the stuff for it, with the press releases and stuff. And uh, it's it helps shape a lot of my research for Degrassi because all of the history is just written down and in these little places. So that's how I end up here with an outline asking you like, hey, tell me about this little thing. I've got another piece of trivia for you then. We're referring to Robert Mystician. Yeah. Um, when we were making the, we had to make some sort of letterhead really quickly. And so we just did it with a letter set, actually. You probably don't even know what that is, but you not a good. <laughs> it's a, a transfer, way of transferring letters onto paper. So it looks like it's printed, um, but it's this before we had computers and, you know, in our houses. It, yeah. You know, it's more like professional. We did that for a bit, but then we needed one for junior high. So we got this idea of the, the top part. You've probably seen the press release paper. Yes. And the top part looks like a piece of lined paper from a notebook. And then it goes into the plain white paper. It has a little hole in the side. Yeah. I was, I suggested the hole. I said, it's got to have a hole. I know it's going to cost more, but it's just one drill. It'll be fine. And um, so we had the word, then do the word Degrassi. That was when we had to decide on the capital or lower G. And then we wrote junior high to make it look more like the crisscross between the school and professional. And on the letterhead, that's my handwriting. And it was because of that. That they decided to do that handwriting that's not my handwriting on the tv but that was where the, the inspiration came from and then but if you look on the jackets which you will see one of the american actors that kevin smith directed in mall rats she's wearing Shannon it. Doherty. yeah yes. the junior high that's on the jacket is my writing that is so cool i have learned a hundred different degrassi facts in this interview that is so freaking cool and the one on the t-shirts is, is me as well but the that's, one on the show was Robert, or he may have used a computer, but. That is so interesting. Wow. I'm so excited afterwards to write down all the fun facts and update all the Wikipedia articles and be like, we learned this, we learned this. <laughs> I have some wrap up questions for you because sure. even after you left Degrassi, um, you did not slow down. So you uh, left publicity after Degrassi and you became a teacher for 20 years. You taught at Centennial College a class on book publishing where they filmed Degrassi High. So that's, I'm going to go there too on my tour to Toronto. On top of all that, you, as we spoke earlier about, you became a writer for the young adult genre. Um, and now you work as a promotional copywriter. But the question that I have for you is a lot of your work history feels like you're trying to stay connected to young people. And I want to know why was that so important to you? I don't know that it... It was until it became so. Mm. Um, I used to like babysitting a lot when I was a teenager. <laughs> I made all my extra money doing that. Um, and I, but when I got older, I didn't find that 
I connected to the kids particularly, but with Degrassi, I became, I would actually say I learned to be patient working on Degrassi. Mm. Um, and as you can see, I'm a fairly energetic person. And sometimes that would translate into not being patient with other people who didn't have the energy. But I learned to slow down and be patient with the Degrassi kids. And I think that I appreciated that. And that's why I wanted to get back to high school. You know, I wanted to work with young people. I like the energy that they have. I love that they're seeing things for the first time. As a teacher, I always sort of pictured, well, some people say you're Mrs. Frizzle, but sure. But I always think, think like I'm at an aquarium with my mm -hmm. class with, and they're looking at these fish they've never seen before. And I'm saying, and did you see the one in the back there? And what's this one doing down here? And that we're all looking at the same thing, but I'm just making sure that they see everything that they need to see. And that's the kind of teacher I kind of was. I like the idea of, I like being there when people are seeing things for yeah. the first time and seeing, like, I used to show the movie Some Like It Hot in class almost every semester because it is the most hilarious movie ever made on the history of the planet. And it's quite an old movie for the students because it was made in 59 or seven, I think, seven maybe. And um, I love, I tell them that it's okay. It's going to look old fashioned, it's black and white. Mm -hmm. Just bear with the first 10 or 15 minutes and you'll soon find that you you, you get into it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I would stop. I don't, didn't watch the movie after the first couple of I watched the class watching the movie. I just found that so fascinating to see how they, when they got jokes, how they got jokes, mm -hmm. um, when they started to relax into it and go with the story and, you know, the willing suspension of disbelief and all that stuff happening. And it, it's, I like that. So that is so beautiful. And that, that's honestly how I feel you guided me through this history of Degrassi together as you've pointed out all those things. Well, did you see that, that outfit? I made that dress and I did that. So it's very cool to get that experience from you. Our final fan question comes from Amber, who wants to know, did you ever expect that Degrassi would go on to make such an impact? And how does it feel to know that you're a part of it? I'll answer the second half first. Mm -hmm. Absolutely great. Like, I love the fact that it kept going and going. And sure, I didn't really stay watching the show. I haven't watched much of the newer ones. I haven't watched much past the book. Mm -hmm. A little, but not that much. Because when you don't really know the characters, you don't connect. Like, you just watch one episode and it doesn't really mean that much to you because you don't know who the people are. Exactly. But I'm, I'm very proud of what we all did. Uh, tell me the first part of the question again. The first part of the question, Amber's question was, did you ever expect that Degrassi would go on to make such an impact and how does it feel to know you're a part of it? I didn't, although as the seasons went on, especially into Degrassi High, we were beginning to say, look at how much attention people are paying to us. This is so weird. And, but we didn't expect what would happen with reruns. They went back onto after school times. And on my first year teaching, I would have kids who run out the door when the bell rang to get home in time to watch the Degrassi rerun. And I thought, oh, I thought I'd come here and I would just be like, okay, I'm your teacher and let's talk about where we're going to learn. And suddenly when they found out about the Degrassi connection, they got very excited. And I thought, this is weird. And I would sometimes use Degrassi things in, because I've also done, um, talking to groups like either teachers or at schools well Degrassi was on I had um two little shticks that I did one was a little workshop on writing a Degrassi script that mm -hmm. I would get these kids to write a scene like we would work out the outline and blah 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 and then we, each group would write a scene and then they would do like a read through and the scenes would work which was so really fun because cool. I would that. do little things like say why don't I suggest you look in the donut shop? I would know these guys are going to say they find her in the donut shop. So uh, so that I would make things happen in it so that it always read well. Uh, usually I didn't have to do any tweaks like that. But you know, if there was one to do, I would do it. The other one was a 
a thing on how a scene is put together, like all the different people who work to create this two minute scene. And it was a scene from Censor actually. And Phil had made up a little special tape for me that just had the clip repeated sometimes with the sound down and stuff like that. And then I would, and that became part of my, my uh, curriculum. Like I would actually use some of that stuff in school later on. Where were we going with this? So did, how, did we know it was going to come to anything? No. But every time I turn around, Degrassi just never, ever ends. Mm -hmm. It's very strange. But we, even when we went through that sort of fallow period, when the reruns kind of stopped and then the next generation hadn't come along and Jan and Linda were out, and you know, this story we're out for lunch. And he said, you know, if Emma were a real person, she'd be starting junior high soon. And that's what started. But even in that fallow period, people still remembered the word. Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you how many doors just that D word will open to say you were part of that. Everybody suddenly is interested. Yeah. And I got into teacher's college because I put it on my application. I'm sure of it. Because when I was there on the first day, one of my profs said, I mentioned that I worked on the show and she said, oh, you're the one. I thought, you've seen my application. Because if she knows there's, there's a one, she's seen it. Yeah. And sometimes I think when I say, I'd like to do this, and suddenly somebody finds out I'm on Degrassi, was on Degrassi, not on Degrassi, but you know, part of it. Yeah. They say, well, let's bring her in because she might have something interesting to add like I don't want to get really specific about things but just different things that I've done you know volunteer things fun things organizational things that I just get I just find that people kind of go this is um, maybe we'll get an interesting story out of this person yeah. if nothing you know it's a strange thing how how alive it has become and, and I think will be for a long time I think it's like a little bit like Anna of Green Gables it's never going to quite not be mm -hmm. there's no not, no more Anna of Green Gables books coming out yeah. But every few years, somebody comes up with some new variation on Anne. Yeah. You know, those, they're just, it's just a sort of enduring thing. I love that. And I, yeah, I love the shout out to uh, uh, Anna Gables as a Charlottetown Prince Edward Islander. That, that sticks with my, with my heart. Degrassi has not produced a new episode in six years. And I have a platform online as Degrassi Kid where I talk to people from the show. I talk to interview fans and stuff. And it's something that has become so popular for me that it's now a part-time job on the internet. And Degrassi doesn't at this moment in time exist. And it's still leaving such a big impact with COVID. People were at home. They were finding the show and starting it. They're watching it with their families. I've made so many wonderful connections with Degrassi fans who have only found the show in the last two or three years. And I mean, it hasn't been on the air in forever. So I, I think it's something that's truly just, it, it's made such a mark because it remains authentic. It talks about teen issues in an honest way. And I just think it's something that's going to live forever. And I'm so happy to hear that. Well, and I think the teen issues never really, really change. I mean, sure, you might have a cell phone now and you didn't before, but the relationships that people have, let's hope that they don't change too much as well. Because, I mean, people do complain and they say people don't feel connected to the world that they're in. Yeah. But I think that the show always has people connected to the world that they're in and it might continue to serve as a model or something like that. I don't know. I think that there'll be things, I think, like Anne of Green Gables, I think it just, it'll transmute into what it needs to be for the next, like when we're all dead. Yeah. Somebody will make a show about the making of schools out or something like that, you know? Exactly. I just think it's, it's not going to live on necessarily the original episodes that people are going to be watching, but Although they may revisit them, like just like somebody who watched Anne with an E might say, I'd like to read the original book, you know? Yeah. It's harder to go back to TV, which was all on videotapes, but yeah. I think it's available on YouTube and stuff, most of it now. Yes, yes, you can usually find it online. But I think that people will often like to go back. What was the original to this? 
exactly. uh, like you did. And uh, I think that, that that's going to probably, like even the Palooza, which was so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, um, you know, Pat has a cast party each summer at his yeah. house. It's a private thing. It's nothing, you know, for uh, publicity or promotion or anything, but it's for us. Fun to go and see everybody. That's what I had felt about Palooza. Is I, like I know that you guys had started to do these hangouts, and it felt like we got the inside scoop of that. Like we got to feel like what was it like to hang out with the Degrassi kids for a weekend, and and I loved that they had Rebecca do a, a talk about cannabis. They had uh, Michelle Goodeve do a talk about being a pilot, and I love that they didn't just make it about being you know these kids who are on Degrassi. It's, well, what are they up to now? And what are they like as real people? So that's something that piqued my interest in starting a podcast and peeking behind the curtain of like, well, if I could sit down to Catherine Ellis and talk about the books that she wrote and the experiences that she had what would she have to say so it's very very cool Catherine I won't steal any more of your time I still it took you for two hours I figured that given how bubbly you and I both are we would probably get talking this meant so much fun getting to talk about yourself for two whole hours come on (laughs) (laughs) I love it and I love getting to listen I love that I was so worried when I wrote this outline this is the longest outright line I've ever written for any podcast and I was like I'm asking way too many questions and you had such good responses to every single one and I've learned so much and I'm just so grateful for you It's been wonderful. See you soon. Bye. I want to say a huge thank you to Catherine and all of our Patreon subscribers who made this interview possible. You always ask such amazing questions that bring our Degrassi interviews to the next level. If you want to ask a question, you can visit patreon.com slash Degrassi kid and sign up for the tier that's best for you. But for now, let's thank our current donors, Amber, Nicholas, and my best friend, Stevie, who are our highest donors on Patreon, and Amethyst, AR, Becca, Brittany, Charlie, Daniela, Dave, Evie, Emily, Eugene, Ethan, Gina, Hannah, Isabel, Jasper, Jackie, Joss, Jay, Joe, Jolene, Josie, Vince, Catherine, Kristen, Crystal, Kylia, Lily, Lizzie Games, Max, Mark, Mackenzie, Mike, Megan, Mina, Molly, Owen, Rachel, Racine, Rebecca, Sarah J, Shannon, Shane, Stephanie, Shelby, Sierra, Sunita, and Nixon from the Degrassi Generations Facebook page who subscribed for a full year. I couldn't do it without you. Love you. Bye.